0: When you're kind of searching for the thing that you wanna do, you also have to be searching for the type of person you wanna surround yourself with because at the end of the day, you are spending a minimum of 40 hours a week with these humans that you're surrounding yourself with. And even if you are doing some meaningless job, if you're doing it around people that are kind, that are caring, that are motivated, that are driven, that care about you, it kinda doesn't matter what you're doing.
1: I'm Brandon Dawson and this is The Distiller. Podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. Very often on The Distiller, we talk about how someone approaches their work, how they got the job they have, how they're bringing themselves to that work every day. This episode is a little bit different because my guest is Carrie Farler. She's the head of people at Paperless Post. Paperless Post, if you're not familiar with it, is an online stationary greeting card and announcement company. And as head of people, Carrie is essentially the head of human resources and talent development. That means that Carrie is in charge of recruiting, hiring, performance management, all the stuff that people butt up against when they're trying to get a job, keep a job, advance in that job, and figure out how to generally be happy in their work. So, yes, we talked about Carrie's career path. We talked about how she has navigated the perils of being a woman climbing the ladder of corporate leadership, and it is a fascinating discussion. She's got great experience, but the second half of our conversation is all about the insight and the perspective she has on the mistakes people make when applying for jobs or asking for raises, about how to think about your work in ways that if you don't have maybe the most meaningful job in the world, you can find and create happiness where you are. Carrie and I met on a sunny Sunday morning just before the doors opened at Queen City Radio, a great sort of indoor-outdoor industrial bar just off Washington Park and over the Rhine in Cincinnati. We sipped coffee, it was Sunday morning after all, and we talked about a somewhat mysterious side of how we approach work, especially work in a more corporate or institutional environment. Carrie's career path, her approach to her own work, and then especially the perspective she brings to the agency we all have and how we forge our own career path. It's super interesting, and I hope informative, no matter where you are on the journey. If you're on that treadmill or climbing that ladder, you may want to have a notebook and a pen ready as you listen to this episode. Here is my conversation with Paperless Post's head of people, Carrie Farler, on The Distiller. Cheers.
0: Cheers.
1: Welcome to Queen City Radio.
0: Thank you. Thanks for coming. I thought I was wondering. This morning, I'm like, is he gonna make me drink whiskey at eleven o'clock in the morning? Yes.
1: No, I I try to be gentle. Although they do have whatever whatever you want here. No, no, no. It'll be it'll be I'll be kind to you.
0: Thank you. I've Let's, had a long day. Yeah.
1: Let's start off with the with the basics. Okay. Uh, you are currently the head of people. Yes. At Paperless Post. Correct. Tell us a little bit first about for people that don't know mm-hmm. what Paperless Post is, and then tell us. Sort of the overview of what the job of head of people entails. Sure. At it's such a post. funny title.
0: It is. It's, it's like, like, wow, that's funny. a real job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's a head of, hap- or chief happiness officer at the opening on LinkedIn right now. And I thought my job is not dissimilar. Uh-huh. Uh, so paperless post is an online invitation service. Okay. So our competitors are Facebook events, Evite, Eventbrite. Um, but the difference is they're more um, kind of custom and tailored. So. Mm-hmm. They were founded by a brother and sister who are younger than me, Mm -hmm. who both went to Harvard together and are best friends. And the brother, who's younger, James, who's our CEO, was throwing a 21st birthday party for himself. And he put all of this time and effort into it, but he wasn't going to send, like, real invitations because, you know— this wasn't that long ago. This was probably 14 years ago, 13 years ago. And so he created Paperless Post to make these beautiful online invites to be able to send. And, and they've since evolved. And we have an, a separate product called Flyer. And people use the Cards product to send like wedding invitations. And they use Flyer more like Facebook events. Cool. But Yeah, we've been around okay. for about 10 years.
1: Awesome. And then Head of People. Head of People. What actually is that?
0: So the more antiquated title would be head of HR. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, or head of talent even as the title evolved, but now it's more head of people because human resources sounds so like yeah. not people focused and it always has been a people focused job. Yep. So learning and development, human resources, talent acquisition, talent retention, really anything that the employees need to want to stay there working there right, right. is my responsibility. Okay, yeah.
1: cool. So. Typically, the the interviews don't have this uh, structure, but there are two specific things that I want to talk to you about today, and we talked about this a little bit. Okay. The first is a little bit about your career path, Mm -hmm. and because you've had an interesting career path. Yeah, (laughs) and I want to hear about that. But then the second is you are in a unique position to talk about how people get jobs and the mistakes they make and the challenges of the job market, and there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you about that. Sure. So let's talk, first of all, Mm-hmm. about your, your career path. <laughs> okay. Give us a little bit, like you have a, you have an art degree, don't you? I
0: do have a degree, technically art education with a minor in sculpture. Okay. Yeah.
1: But, and I, <laughs> although I know you still practice art, that's not been yes. your job ever. <laughs> so you came up in hospitality and management and mm-hmm. event management.
0: Yep. Yes. So I, um, I initially went to college to be an architect. Realized really quickly that it would take like 30 years to be able to present any of my own designs to the world. And I was narcissistic enough to say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do someone else's work. Yeah. I want to show my own work. Um, And so then I switched into graphic design because it seemed like I might get a little more freedom. And graphic, like Photoshop didn't even exist then actually. I think it was brand new to the market. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, and it was really just too computer-focused. Hmm. Um, it was becoming too computer-focused, and I really wanted to do things with my hands. So I went after a, a painting degree. Okay. And when I realized I wasn't quite as talented as most of the other people <laughs> in my program, I thought, How? so I probably wouldn't be like successful enough financially speaking, to make a living that way, I decided to add on, to tack on the art education degree. Okay. And when you're in art education, you have to take all of the different studios. And so I had to take sculpture and ceramics and metal and I I ended up liking that more than painting. So I minored in that.
2: Cool.
0: So while I was in college, um, I had to support myself. And so I got a job um, as, uh, first as a server and that lasted for like two weeks, became a bartender. That lasted like a month and they made me front of house manager. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this isn't so bad, and then um, and that was in Oxford at Miami University. Yep. And then when I started doing my student teaching, which was in Cincinnati, I got a job with um, with 4EG, which was not 4EG at the time. It was just Mount Adams Pavilion and a live right, one, which
1: is a entertainment company here. Yes. Group. Yeah. Here in Cincinnati. And they,
0: at the time they had two establishments. Now they have like thirty between here in Chicago and I think Lexington even, and they're they're huge. Gotcha. So I worked with them um, while I was finishing my degree. Mm-hmm. And they were asking me, do you want a job here when you graduate? And I said, no, no, no. I didn't pay all this money for this degree in art education. And I, I was really snobby about it, actually. Um, and then I finished my student teaching and thought, I don't want to do this. This right. is like really not. It was like teaching recess, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There was another restaurant group in town. Um, that had just a couple of places and they had a GM position open and I knew one of the owners and I got in there um, and worked as a GM at a bar called Mainstay mm-hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. It was also an event space and they booked live bands uh, and I got to do all the booking and I, I'm, I'm like a huge lover of music so that was really exciting for me and it was a little different than the 4EG gig in that a lot of it was the bookings. right? Um, and I loved that job but Still, I, I was only there for a year, and the whole time I was there, I thought like you—you you left to try something different, and you just fell right back into your comfort yeah, zone. Yeah. Um, and as luck would have it, um, Mainstay was right behind one of the bigger advertising agencies in um, in Cincinnati called Ben Bridge, mm-hmm. and the Bridge folks as you know, as would I know, come because in. that's where I worked at the time. <laughs> this is
1: how we met. Yeah. Uh, we met because the whole bridge crew used to drink at that bar
0: every bar day, too much. <laughs> every day, every
1: single day. Yeah. But I think that was my, my understanding is that was where, I mean, you met a lot of people there, not just me. Oh
0: gosh. Yeah. I met, um, I met the copy director. Mm-hmm. I met the like head of search there at the time. I met uh, the president, actually, and CEO would come in. Basically, every Tuesday, I took deliveries, and I would stick around and bartend the happy hour shift. Okay. And so that bridge crew would come in every Tuesday, and then they would also come in for karaoke, and I don't remember what night that was, but I would usually be there because it was one of our bigger nights, and I needed to make sure, like, the place wasn't burning down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I would I, I got to know these people really well, and they were like, it just see, and I, and they knew at that point we had become friends, they knew that I really didn't want to be in hospitality anymore mm-hmm. and was really looking to branch out, but really still wanted to be around creative people. Um, and so they said, you know, what like you're really organized, you're a GM. like you could probably be a project manager yeah, here. Yeah. Um, and I applied for an associate project manager position and knew that I was going to take a couple steps backwards in my career to like change paths.
1: But into something with a... A bigger future,
0: a way bigger future for me. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't like I was all excited about being a project manager, but what I did know was that as a project manager, you got to learn what all the other jobs were, mm-hmm. and like I could figure out the industry yeah. more quickly in that job than any other job. And I remember this really pivotal moment in my life. I got the offer for the project manager position. Simultaneously, got an offer to do like a three-month casting gig on MasterChef through some of my um, mm-hmm. connections in uh, in LA. And it was just this moment where I was like, "Do I stay here and like go down this path where there's stability and permanency, and I get to stay where my family is, right. or do I take this temporary gig and kind of continue to live this like vagabondish lifestyle that I've been the living dream. forever?" And ultimately, I took the job at Possible, and that was—I mean, it, it changed the course of my career. Yeah, um, and it's—it's it's how I got where I am now.
1: So you—you you started off there as a project manager, and I'm mm-hmm. going to maybe maybe skip a bunch of steps mm-hmm. because we ac- we ended up working there together at the time I was I I think I had just taken over running the talent group Mm -hmm. you were interested yeah and I don't remember what spurred your interest in that other than maybe just feeling like ultimately once you once you figured out the jobs project management wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily what your heart was
0: yeah I mean, I think it was a little more than that. I think that, you know, and as the GM in hospitality for so long, 100% of your job is dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Half the time you're dealing with the clientele of whatever establishment, and the other half you're, like, making sure your bartenders show up on time, making sure they know what the menu is, how to make the drinks, making sure that they've got the right rapport with the customers to, like, actually make the place successful. And so I think I knew that, like, HR, human relations, really, yep. Um was something that I would excel at. And I was also really interested in operations because I had operationalized all these places with 4EG for so long. Yeah. And HR people has like, it's, it's basically the internal operations of any company right. Right, right. is the people team. Um, and so while I was sure I didn't want to be a project manager, it wasn't like um, talent just kind of fell to me. Not only that, but like the opportunity to work with you seemed really exciting. You had been a really big advocate for me the whole time I had been there. Um, and so it just seemed like the right thing. And, you know, they, if you remember at first they were like, what is this bullshit no, there job? Was, yeah, there, was, <laughs> There's there was no a, job for her. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of convincing
1: because the job didn't exist. And also because you didn't have,
0: the background. The
1: background there and the people who my, you know, it's a, it's a global company now. And yeah. the people who I reported to were in California and didn't know who you were. I was, I knew. It's like, Carrie's going to be perfect at this. <laughs> anyway, you, you were. You, uh, we finally found a place for you yeah. in that job. You initially started off in recruiting. Yep. And then rapidly. And I think even at that point, I was sort of already on the way out. Yes. And could see that you were a logical successor to <laughs> most of what I was doing. But here's, here's the great thing is that, um, you know, you were, you were a great fit there. You quickly moved on and moved up. You ended up moving to New York. Yeah. Um, I took
0: the region, Possible put me in a regional role. Yep. So I was commuting to New York every couple of weeks Yeah. and Possible told me, and so I was supporting the New York office, which was building up and right. the Cincinnati office, which was like, burning down.
1: Yeah. Which is why I ended up leaving because it, <laughs> yeah. it killed me. It crushed me. Those were honestly the two worst years of my life. But yeah. that's another story for another episode.
0: <laughs> oh, can we flip it? And I'll interview you <laughs> sure, for that one be, because be I have all of the skeletons are, there. We are
1: drinking whiskey for that <laughs> yeah. episode.
0: As we should.
1: Oh God. Yeah. yeah. I try to block those two years out. Most of them. <laughs> but, um, so it's it,
0: so funny because there's like So different from your perspective and from mine, yeah. Like, because what it did for your life and what it did for my life,
1: right? I mean, I think it set us both
0: on our path,
1: you know. It it did. I mean, yeah. You, I think, toward a positive, and me moving away from (laughs) a negative. uh, Yeah. It's funny. I've never. It's never been so hard to quit a job. It Mm. has never taken. I was thinking about that the other day. For some reason, like the timeline of when I quit and when I ended up leaving. I think it was like four months. It was a long time. And I ended up signing my own. That place had dwindled to such a degree that I ended up signing my own termination paperwork. Yeah.
0: you like did your own exit interview
1: <laughs> with myself.
0: Yeah, here's how I've been feeling for the yeah, last yeah. I seven actually ran years. into
1: the uh, the president, uh, the woman who was the president, the other day, and she didn't know this, but we were at a bar the other day talking, uh-huh. and I said, "Oh yeah, I." I uh, there was nobody there to do it, and I was at the bar. I had left. I had signed all of my paperwork, and then the CFO wandered across the street because somebody needed to sign, like, the final termination form, and there was nobody left, and he wandered over to ask me if I would sign it for myself. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was an upswing for you and a, and a downswing for me, which is great. These things happen. And yeah. that's all necessary. Everything
0: for a reason. Yeah.
1: So you ended up moving to New York. Yes. You worked for Possible for a little bit longer. And now th-
0: I didn't work for Possible in New York.
1: Oh, you didn't? No, you I kept com- Yeah, I commuted every two job. weeks for them. Okay.
0: And they kept saying they were gonna move me. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed onto that. I was like, yes, there's yep. gonna be a lot more opportunity for me there at this stage in my career. Because what was happening at that company is it w- it was very corporate and there was a lot of red tape. And to actually move up, it mattered less how much promise you were showing and mm-hmm. mattered more like Your paper trail and their process and everything. And so I knew that I was going to stagnate pretty quickly there. And But when they said they'd transfer me, I said, okay, I'll stick around for this. And for about a year, I did the commute. And then um, ultimately, it seemed like they were going to drag their feet on that um, move. And so I actually got reached out to by Mashable because I had changed my location on LinkedIn Uh, to New York. So they
1: thought you were there. So they thought
0: I was there. And I got a job as a recruiter and, again, was like, man, I have in the last two years, I, had, I spent almost three years at Possible, and for the last two of them, I felt like I had already grown out of recruiting, but I knew that I wanted an opportunity in New York, and yep. I knew that if I could... And through the interview process, I saw that they had a really big gap in talent management mm-hmm. um, and thought, if I can just get my foot in the door, I can prove to them yep. um, that they need more than just a recruiter.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and so that's what I did. I spent the first three months kind of building my case, similar to what you and I had done for me. Yep. Um, and quite frankly, similar to what I had done even when I entered hospitality, just saying, like, I want more, I want more, I want mm-hmm. more, and I know I can do more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so Mashable recognized that, um, thankfully, and I spent the next four years with them um, building that company. We took it from, um, when I started, we had 98 people in um just New York and San Francisco, mm-hmm. and over the time that I was there, we built that up to seven offices globally, including Sydney and Singapore and London, and we opened an office in LA and Chicago. Uh, we obviously kept the offices in um, in New York and San Francisco, and we grew from like 98 people to up to 320 at our height, and then we did scale back down strategically. We raised a couple of rounds of funding. It was it was incredible exposure, mm-hmm. and. Um, I didn't have anyone above me that had any experience in talent or HR management. And so I was really learning as I went and I built a network around me of people that did know, uh, those things so that I was learning about the business side of things. It's a media company. I was learning about the business side from uh, the, the incredible team I was surrounded with at Mashable, but I was learning about like HR and talent development from like Google and a few really strong, powerful women that I met in New York that, that knew the ropes there.
1: For a lot of people, I feel like that that gap above you and the Mm -hmm. lack of direct leadership Mm -hmm. would have been terrifying.
0: Oh, I ate it up. Yeah, yeah. It was because for me, um, I I kind of wanted to write my own story, Mm -hmm. um, and I. When it came to all things people, I didn't really want to play by the rules mm-hmm. because the rules were changing. The workforce was going from, you know, mostly boomers and Gen Xers to almost entirely millennial. And you couldn't apply the same rules on how to manage people that you had for all these years before. And even for all the years I had been in operations management and HR.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so I feel like I was really lucky that I didn't have someone above me that had any sort of hmm. antiquated view of how to manage people. Right. Um, but I had enough resources around me that I could figure out and, and, and was, you know, trying to be resourceful enough to do my own research to figure out what do we take from what we knew about how to manage people yeah. All these years before to, to apply it to this new generation that has a completely different set of needs and wants.
1: But at the same time, a lot of that job is legal knowledge. Yes. And that doesn't change. Nope. Unfortunately. <laughs> and how did you how did you gain the knowledge that you needed about mm-hmm. employment law and, and workplace legality?
0: Yeah.
1: And apply that to the changing nature of the workforce. Yeah.
0: A lot of reading, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of kind of uh, you know, faking it till I made it. Mm-hmm. Like getting a question in a room and thinking I don't have the slightest clue. And I I had the disadvantage also of what I did know. I knew Ohio law. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know New York law, and I certainly didn't know California law. And New York and California are completely different beasts when it comes to employment law, especially compared to really any of the Midwestern states. Yep. Um, they're always on the cutting edge. They change things constantly yep. um, and so yeah and I did far a- more
1: worker skewed
0: Oh far more worker skewed yep. which, which is you know really can be really scary for someone in my position if you're someone who looks as H- at HR as the person that protects the company Yeah, totally but for me it's like the person that protects the people because there is no company without yeah. the people yep. so making sure they had everything they needed was was just always top of mind for me um, So yeah I did a lot of reading I went to conferences when I could but generally didn't have the budget for that uh, I took some online courses. Uh, that I funded myself. Uh, and again, really tried to make sure that I was building a network of people that I could ask mm-hmm. um, for expertise. And, mm-hmm. and you know, um, Mashable was really supportive and knew that I didn't know everything. And we had external counsel that I could rely on right. if I needed to, to kind of make sure we weren't getting into any trouble or, or you know, doing anything that the law had changed last October and yeah, yeah. no one knew, so, which which still is happening really frequently. Really. Resourcefulness, I guess, is the short answer.
1: Yeah, which I think typifies who you are. I mean, in every role that you've been in, everything that you've done, that kind of resourcefulness and independence. And I will figure this out, which is a really interesting thing to me about you. And I don't know if it comes from a specific place. Mm -hmm. Um, But you are never afraid to just walk in and say, well, I (laughs) I can figure this out. Yeah. And I don't know if that's—I uh, don't know if that's bravado. I don't know mm. if it is purely self-confidence. What is that about you that allows? Because I think this influences the second half of our discussion. Yeah. Because I want to talk to you about how how other yeah. people can think about their careers. But I mean, by the end of your time at Mash- Mashable, you were the senior vice president of operations. Mm-hmm. You started yeah, out as the chief of a,
0: staff to the CEO. <laughs> right. So I mean, yeah. all
1: of a sudden, boom! Here you yeah. are in an executive level position in one of the most visible companies in the United States yeah. at the time, having yeah. basically just walked <laughs> in and created your own spot.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's actually, um, I'm really good at portraying confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, it, and, and part of it is that, you know, I grew up a dancer and a cheerleader and I was on stage for a lot of the time. And that takes a lot of like, You put it on out here and all of the nerves and all of the insecurities and all of the self-doubt happens behind the scenes or backstage and you get out there and you just have to turn it on and you only have to turn it on for a couple of minutes, but you have to turn it on. And I do think part of it was that Mm -hmm. was just like, I know how to pretend that I am the best at this for a few minutes to get me through this room or to get me through this meeting.
1: Which is fine and valuable, but then mm-hmm. in the in a corporate context, you have to be able you to back to it up. You have to actually figure it out. Yeah. So I
0: think that actually is a product of how I was raised by my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents had my sister and I when they were very young. Mm-hmm. And um, it, kind of because they were hippies and kind of because I think they were a, a little underprepared to have two children so close in age when they were such babies themselves, a lot of everything when we were younger was to figure it out ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that was figuring out how to entertain ourselves on a Sunday because they were watching the Bengals or mm-hmm. whether that was figuring out how to ride a bike because they were both working two jobs to make sure that they could support us. We were incredibly blue collar. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to figure it out a lot on our own. And we had each other to learn from, my sister and I. But, and, and not that my parents weren't great parents. They were just really hustling and working yeah, really yeah. hard to provide for us. And so, a lot of the time, we just had to figure it out. So the combination of like learning how to be confident on a stage yeah. and having like limited resources at home and having to figure a lot of things out for myself, I think I carried with me through adulthood. Hmm. And quite frankly, my experience at Miami University, I think, also lent to this because I went to a couple of different colleges before I landed at Miami. Um, I graduated from Miami, and I, I, I stuck out like a sore thumb at Miami. I mean, it's it can be it's a the the student body at Miami are generally like pretty well off and have had a different upbringing than my sister and I both had. And I had to fake it a lot there too. What do they
1: call Miami the the public Ivy or something like that? The
0: Ivy league of the Midwest. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. And
1: there is for the better or for worse, there's that, there's that connotation that it is, A school with a good education, but there's also that privilege aspect.
0: Yeah. I mean, Um, and that was my experience, was that that was definitely true. But it also happened to be 10 minutes from my hometown. Yeah, yeah. And so, it like, if you grew up in Hamilton, where I grew up, a, sub, a like, a not even a suburb of Cincinnati, a very small town between Dayton and Cincinnati, Ohio, um, going to Miami was a little bit like the 13th grade, and even though you knew you were getting a good <laughs> education and it was very expensive, it felt like you weren't leaving, yeah, yeah. which is why I didn't choose to go there at first,
3: gotcha. <laughs> you know,
0: why I ultimately landed there, though. But, yeah, so I think there was a lot of, like, figure out how to fake it in the room
2: mm-hmm.
0: growing up and even through college, and then you better be able to go and back yourself up. Yep. And so, yeah, and and I mean, still, honestly, to this day, I'm learning as I go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's still a lot of that. Like, answer the question in the room as best you can, but be able to go and get the right answer, the better answer. And then also be willing to say, hey, I got it wrong in there, but I went and found out and I'm Mm -hmm. providing you with the right information now. Because you want to instill confidence in your board of directors, in the employee that comes to you crying because they don't know what their next step is. Um, And you you want to be able to make them feel secure in that room even when you don't know. So sometimes it is a lot of like, I'll find that for you. Or this is what I think the answer is. But being willing to say when you make mistakes, yep. and to change course, I think is also a lot of it. It not being ashamed of messing up.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So you you went from Mashable to uh, MoviePass, your chief talent officer mm-hmm. at MoviePass, then to Paperless Post. Yes. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It does seem as though like possible to Mashable to Movie. There's a there's a theme of digital and of a primary. Primarily millennial workforce
2: yeah.
1: at all of those places. Yes. Do you think that? And this is speculation. If you were hired as the chief talent officer at a more traditional company, mm-hmm. would you would you be challenged in that? Is there something about the education that you have received on mm-hmm. the job being really mm-hmm. specifically enabling you um, in these particular workforce situations?
0: I mean, there. Uh- there are times when I think it would be a dream to work at somewhere to not have more to corporate with a structure yeah. and with a, a you know a, a different workforce or at least a more um, variable workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think sometimes it would be a dream because it can be really frustrating, especially for me, because at my age, you know, I'm like just on the edge of being Gen X and like making my way into millennials. So I I can relate a lot to like the millennial mindset. And even to Gen Z a bit, mm-hmm. um, but I also was raised that like you do your work, you don't complain, mm-hmm. and you you figure it out, and mm-hmm. nothing is handed to you. Yep. And so when I first made the transition from possible to the mashable, I was like, holy shit! Like, how am I gonna keep these people happy? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that I can. Um, And so, yeah, there are times at which I feel like if I walked into a more corporate or more structured environment, it would make my job actually easier, not harder. And also I would have the resources that I've had to find on my own all of these years. Um, But I also wouldn't be building something. And my entire career, without exception, I have built. Hmm. Um, I haven't walked into somewhere that was um, altogether stable or Mm. completely off the ground or in its final stage or in a resting state. Yeah, totally. Every job. I mean, from the the real estate development company through 4EG through Mainstay when they were getting off the ground Possible was kind of weird because it was bridge but then they got bought and and
1: even then that job my job as the talent director was something that I kind of invented and yeah. we were building that department at the time yeah. and it didn't really exist
0: yeah and, and so. we were convincing that the practice even needed to be there yep. and then with Mashable I mean they hired me on the heels of series A and I we got through series C and then through to a sale and then I moved on yeah right because it was like if I would have stuck around yeah. I wasn't Going to be building anything anymore, right, I was gonna right. be maintaining interesting, and I think building is like what makes me excited,
1: huh? Is that something that you look for in these opportunities, or absolutely. is it absolutely okay?
0: Yeah, it's really important to me. I mean, th- in this position, I actually got really lucky because I inherited a team of incredibly talented people. In all of these other roles, I've gotten to build my own team from scratch, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy doing, and so I, I do feel that I got really lucky in this role that I got a great team because that's not always the case, yeah. right? Um, you might come in and you get a team, and you're like, "Gosh, I need to swap all these people yeah. out. How am I? Gonna, this is going to be so hard. How am I going to be perceived in the rest of the organization if I make these moves?" And I walked into a team that is just like incredible. They're diverse. They are thought leaders in their own right. Hmm. They're full of potential. Um, but still and and excited to like build this thing with me and build out a true like talent function. I think they were really focused on talent acquisition before I got there. And now it's, let's focus on talent development and retention right
1: now that we have these people. Let's figure out how to keep them and make them happy. Yes. Yep. And that is, uh, yeah, it's interesting because HR is so often considered. I was uh, in one of the consulting gigs that I have. We were, we were joking the other day about this idea of HR. (laughs) These days and what HR is typically historically yeah. thought of, which is basically the nuns with the rulers yep. walking around telling yeah. everybody what, what not to do. Yes, And and there is that, but increasingly these roles. And that's why when we were at Possible, the HR function was separated from the talent function. Yep. Because that needs to happen. Compliance, mm-hmm. legal, mm-hmm. benefits, payroll, all yeah. that stuff needs to get done. But increasingly companies are thinking about employee happiness and satisfaction yep. as a separate Mm-hmm. necessary discipline. Well,
0: for me, what's been so great about the last three roles um, is that we put those things together. Yeah. And so, and they've all been under my remit. So I'm not only the person thinking about compensation, payroll benefits and making sure all of that's competitive, but also hyper-focused on employee mm-hmm. retention and happiness and and talent acquisition. And I really feel like in these modern tech companies, the reason those things are under one umbrella mm-hmm. of people or talent, however they want to frame it, are because they understand that if HR is operating separately, and if you've got the nun walking around with the ruler telling people yep. not what to do or what not to do, then it's hard to really push forward on any of these other initiatives that are that you're working towards to drive yep. employee happiness. Nice. Um, and so it, it, it's so funny to me because I think when I think about like who I am and how I grew up and and what I've done and what I do, it's like anyone that knows me from like my past life is really. Like, you're the head of what? <laughs> like, you're an HR person? Are you kidding me? Um, but honestly, I think that is why I'm good at it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We had the. Uh, I think you were. I think you were there when we had the HR violation. Reenactment oh yeah. Society yeah. If possible. <laughs> me is, and you
0: and a few other people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it, but it makes sense. I mean, you have to understand that is the stereotype is the HR person who does who's just not human. Yeah. Um, and that was always my fear. Yeah. Uh, there was a woman that you and I both worked for, Helena, who was who was wonderful at possible. But she and I had this discussion a lot a mm-hmm. lot of the time. How do you keep the livelihood in it and just not let legal compliance take over yeah. everything that you do? Because if you're just playing everything that you do safe, you're not going to put the time into actually making people happy.
0: Exactly. It, there, we, there's like HR lifer's disease, right? Yeah, Where totally. Where you put that, you put the lens of protection yep. of legal compliance on everything. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is like that lens has to be there, but it can't be what drives you. It has to be there as like a, okay, I just made this huge plan. Now let me check. Does Mm -hmm. it fit into all these things instead of here are all the things we can't do. Let's start from scratch. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. So we've got uh, not long left and I want to make sure we give time for this because so often on the show, what we talk about is individual people's journey, how they got the job that they got, the kind of things we've been talking about so far. But you are uniquely in a position, uh, as relates to the rest of the guests that I've had on the show, Mm -hmm. to talk about if somebody's, you know, uh, I've had people on the show who are between jobs or transitioning. Mm -hmm. And very often, I think what people are going to get out of listening to the show is the encouragement to think about something other than what they've got.
0: Absolutely. I think
1: you have the opportunity to speak to how they get it and the mistakes Mm -hmm. that people make in the application and interview process. And in the time that we have left, I kind of want to open the floor for you basically to talk about how do people screw up their own lives? How do do they screw up their own development? Mm -hmm. We've talked about how you think about your development. Mm -hmm. If somebody is unhappy in their job, Mm -hmm. happy in their job, but looking at advancement, Mm -hmm. how do you think about A, your own advancement, Mm -hmm. and B, when you have interviewed now, probably thousands and thousands yeah. of people. You've seen thousands and thousands of resumes. Mm-hmm. And I would like to hear from your perspective, uh, millennials are not,
3: mm-hmm.
1: what would you guide people to say in sure. terms of how they think about their careers and how they go about sort of uh, pursuing their dreams sure. or just advancement and better, and better jobs? Yeah. So let's start with, what are the biggest mistakes that people make both in terms of their orientation to their work mm-hmm. and how they go about advancement?
0: Um, A few things. So the orientation to the work, um, a lot of people want something really bad, um, or they think they know a path that they want to go down, but because they don't already have the skill, they won't take the leap to try for it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually far more true for women and people of color than Mm -hmm. it is for men, but men face this as well. But in general, if you see a job out there and you're like, I know I could do that and I want it, but you're not willing to go for it. I think that's a big mistake because what you can at least do is get the feedback and the experience of talking about um, why you couldn't get this um, to kind of go and figure out what you need to build Mm. to actually get the job the next time. So that's part of it is like the willingness to just go for it
1: Using the interview and application process to teach you how to get the job. Absolutely,
0: Because people are going to ask you questions that you can't answer for a job that you really want. And you should leave that interview always asking for feedback. Mm -hmm. Why specifically wasn't I the right candidate for this job? And companies will tell you if you ask for it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't take the time, you didn't want to work for them anyway. Um, But companies will tell you. So asking the questions after the interview, why wasn't I chosen for this? Or how did I come off? How did you perceive me? So that you can use those as learning opportunities for yourself and to figure out, okay, I need to go and do this research before I go to my next interview for that type of role. Because you don't actually have to do the job to know how to do it. You right. have to be willing to do the research and the homework and be resourceful You have to know how to figure to it. it out. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And
1: I think that's an important point. I have, I don't think I have ever not responded if somebody reached out to me after an interview and said, why didn't I get the job? Yeah. Can you give me any fee? if they're, if they're, if they're being needy about it, if they're being petulant about it, yeah. if they're saying I should have gotten the job, no, I'm not gonna respond sure. to that. But if they're generally seeking feedback yeah. and saying, Can you tell me so that I can, you know, do better next yeah. time, I will always respond yeah. to that message.
0: And I think I think most people will. It's mm-hmm. a very
1: and you're right, if they don't, you, you don't yeah, want to be there Yeah, very seldom
0: anyway. occurrence that someone, to your point about the petulance, like if you don't want to reach out to someone and say, you really should have hired me and, and you're really yeah, missing yeah. out, right? That's a bad move and people do make that mistake. Yes. But reaching out and saying, I would love some constructive feedback so that I'm more qualified the next time around or so that I don't make those mistakes again. Yep. Most human beings will get back to you and give you that feedback and are actually excited to do so. Right, right. Yeah. And when it comes to advancement internally, I think... Being your own voice and not expecting anyone to do it for you Mm -hmm. um, is is probably my biggest piece of advice. If you know that you want to move up, you can't go in and say, I've been here for a year, so I deserve a promotion. Mm -hmm. Or I've been here for two years, so I deserve a raise. It has to be, I want to advance in this way, and this is why. Tell me what skills I need to get to the next step. And if you, by the way, can help me a- attain those skills, great. Mm-hmm. If you can't, I'll go and figure it out myself. But you have to be your own voice. No one is going to know that you—I've never gotten a promotion that I didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. Not one time. Yep. And part of that makes me sad because, again, I think that's something that women and people of color oh, face a lot more than, yeah. than men. Um, but also part of it is like— Okay, well, if I'm not going to get that opportunity on my own, I'm going to make that opportunity. Right, right. And so being willing to ask for what you want and being willing to put in the work mm-hmm. when someone tells you how to get what you want are the things that I think a lot of people and a lot of people specifically in this specific workforce generation aren't necessarily willing to do. They're more willing to say, I've been here and so I've reached this this uh, right. timeline milestone and so you're going to promote me, right? No ask what you need to be able to do to get the promotion, not how long you need to be somewhere to get the promotion.
1: Yeah. I worked for a manager a few years ago who uh, gave me a a really great piece of advice, which was um, when I first started, I was assigned to that person and he basically Mm -hmm. said, okay, here's your job. Here's the salary. Here's your set of responsibilities. Um, I think I was promoted into that role. And that person said, now I want you to come into my office tomorrow I want you to tell me what next job is that you want. Mm-hmm. I want you to tell me what you think you would make in that job and mm-hmm. how long it will take you to develop the skills to get into it. now this was a unique person who was uniquely invested in the advancement yeah. of his people. But yeah. that, that input to think about your career yeah. like that and to yeah. say, yes, I have this job, but I don't want this job forever. Yeah, And even the best job you don't want
0: no. forever. They should all be building blocks. Yeah.
1: And to think about it years in advance and to start moving that direction and developing the skills so that when the time comes to be able to say, I have, and and to tell your manager um, to say, I just want you to know in 18 months, thank you for the promotion. I just want to tell you in 18 months, I'm going to be coming back to you and I'm going to ask for the job above this one. Yeah. And I would like to know from you at that time, what am I going to have to prove in order to get it? Yep. That's a great conversation.
0: Absolutely. To have. And I mean, that's the thing I think... um, I think some employees don't understand is that it's it's usually up to you to initiate that conversation. Mm-hmm. Not because your manager's not invested in you, but because your manager is also managing a bunch of other people yeah. and managing a bunch of strategic level stuff that takes away from them being able to put 100% of focus on you. Yep. So bringing it back to them and holding them accountable to put some focus on you yeah. and explaining to them what you need from them to develop is, is on you as an employee. And a lot of employees, I think, can get really... Um, like bummed on an employer for not just giving that to them. Yeah. And it's not that the employer doesn't want to, it's just that we all have these competing priorities hmm. all day and your path is yours to own.
1: And depending on the level of hierarchy in your organization, mm-hmm. your manager may not have the power to single-handedly promote you, even if they think exactly. you should.
0: In most cases, they don't. In no, fact.
1: but if you say to them, I used to tell the people that reported to me at Possible at other places, look, I want the best for you. Mm -hmm. I want you to grow beyond me. You're, you're brilliant. You know, I want you to do great things. I can't do that by myself. Yep. So if you're going to come to me in a year and you're going to ask for a promotion, here's what I'm going to have to take up the ladder in order to advocate for you. Mm -hmm. So give me the, give me the pieces. Yeah. And then when you come to me, say I have done these things and that makes my job easier to go and tell everybody else that you should get more money. Absolutely. Yep.
0: And that's, I mean, it's almost never the case that a manager gets to make those decisions on their right, own. There's right. all, Even in the smallest of organizations, someone has to approve that salary. Yeah. In, in a lot of cases, someone just has to approve that title. There's a me, there's a head of people in the background yeah, yeah, yeah. saying, do you... Okay, you want to give this person that title. Where's their job description? How clear is the path for them moving forward? How do we how do we put them up against their peers to get this promotion, right? Yep. So there there are going to be those layers and you just have you just really have to take ownership over it yourself. And
1: unfortunately, a lot of those aspects are competitive. Uh, the for most companies salary dollars are a zero-sum game. For you yep. to get more, somebody else doesn't get that yep. money.
0: No one understands that. <laughs> and so you have
1: to you have to advocate for yourself as being mm-hmm. worthy Generally, a manager, if that manager's got six people that they're managing, once a year is given a bucket of money to dole out and in increases to the people that work for them. Yeah. How are you going to create the case for yourself to be the person who's worthy of yeah. what you think you should get there?
0: Yeah. I have that conversation. Right now, twice a year and some companies once a year. But every review cycle, mm-hmm. when we're looking at salaries, it's like, no, there's a finite amount of money. And and what companies used to do is not really explain that to their employees. Yeah. And the employees are kind of like, this is a, a black box of information. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what happens when they go and ask about a raise for me. I try to make sure in the organizations that I'm running this function for that we're incredibly transparent about the fact that there's a pool. We, yeah. uh, we're we a business. We operate within a budget. And there's a pool of money to spread around. And so there are a finite amount of dollars, to your point. Like, make yourself stand out. And also understand that if you don't get that giant raise, it's not because the company doesn't want to. It's because the company is a business yeah, yeah. that has goals to hit and boards to answer to. And, like, hiding that type of administration from the employees, I think, is a really big mistake that employers make that can lead to kind of low employee morale because they just they don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And you just, you know, be as transparent as you can about that as an employer so that your employees understand like, what they're up against yeah. um, and don't feel like you're sliding them when they don't necessarily get exactly what they wanted.
1: I do feel like that's a difference, a generational difference in how companies operate and what people are looking for. Yeah, you know, uh, My generation, certainly my parents' generation, was content to say, I'll work hard and somebody will recognize me <laughs> and by God, in 40 years, I'll get a gold yep. watch. Uh, today's workforce, increasingly younger people are saying, not good enough. Yes. I got other options.
2: Yeah, I was and looking not for a wrong. job
1: when I found this one. And, and that, that comes to one of the greatest things when people, I'm sure people, you get this all the time because of the roles that I've held. People come to me and they say, can you talk to me about my job? Can you look at my resume? Can you help me think about, I'm trying to apply for this job. Can you tell me whether I think I've positioned myself sure. appropriately? The number one thing that I talk to with people in that situation is about their agency in the process. Mm -hmm. This company has posted a job because they have a need. Yep. If you position yourself as the answer to that need, Mm -hmm. then you are a blessing to them. Absolutely. And they can't do their business without somebody to do that role. So you have agency. If you come in with that capability, Mm -hmm. don't go in from a position of, I'll take whatever you want. Exactly. I'll take any salary that Mm -hmm. you have. Come in from a position of I'm going to make you better, mm-hmm. but in order for me to give you, you know, mm-hmm. it's the LeBron weight. I'm going to take my talents to to Miami. Yeah, I'm going to bring my talents to your organization. Yeah, but you're going to make it worth it for me, and and I don't. Oh, think that's you the can, talent market not, right now. Yeah, not from a position of entitlement, but from a position of capability. Yeah, coming in and saying, I got skills.
0: I always tell people it's confidence, not arrogance. Yeah. right. Yeah. So you want to come in to any job interview with um. With a sense of humility, mm-hmm. but you have to be confident in your ability, even if you're not. I wrote this article, I think it was four years ago, uh, called Get a Job. It's actually funny. Just this morning, someone on LinkedIn commented on this article um, and said, I know this is four years old. I, have it right here. Um, I know this is four years old, but this is still so relevant. And it one is- of the things I say is like, you you have to go in and portray this confidence. You have to go in your your and, and make yourself um, make yourself indispensable to them. Yep. And, um, and also go in with a self-assuredness about what you're worth. Like if you walk into that job and someone asks you how much money you want to make mm-hmm. and you say I'm negotiable or you completely lowball yourself, that's on you. Yeah. That is not on the company because I can tell you that if, if I put in the job application, a required question about what someone's salary is and they enter the letters N E G instead of putting in numbers, right. I immediately put them to the side pile of maybe I'll come to them later hmm. But in the meantime, I need someone to tell me what they want and do the homework, right? Um, And that's another place where underrepresented and minority groups have a lot more trouble kind of putting the number down on paper. And if, if I could do something with my life, it would probably be training that demographic on like how how to know what they're worth yeah, um, so that they don't miss out on the opportunities because they don't have the confidence to say what they want. So
1: let's be specific. If somebody is uh, looking for a job, they think they've found a job, mm-hmm. they think they've mustered up the confidence to believe that they could apply for it. Mm-hmm. They have no idea, where do they find that? I mean, I think you and I know how we would start doing that.
0: A few places, okay. right? So what I always tell people is don't rely on just salary.com or don't rely on just glassdoor.com. Go onto the internet and do a search for your labor market, which means, labor market means a few things. It it doesn't just mean where you're at in the country. It also means the size of the employer. Mm -hmm. It also means the type of company that it is. So when you're saying, I want to know what it takes, I want to know what it pays to be ahead of people, you can't be that generic. You have to say, I want to know what it takes to be ahead of people at a tech startup in New York that has 100 to 200 people. So it's really about just doing your homework and it's out there. There are surveys upon surveys, some that you have access to for free, some that you have access to for the price of your email address. It's worth it to go out there and educate yourself, but don't go to just one place.
1: And then triangulate. Don't use one source.
0: Exactly. So you're looking at salary.com, indeed.com, glassdoor.com, just on LinkedIn, go into a LinkedIn group, Mm -hmm. post it as your status. Don't be ashamed to go out and find that information um, because it's really important and it's going to be really helpful to you. And also go in with a range. Don't say, you know, I want to make... X thousand dollars plus Y bonus. Go in and say, this is my floor that mm-hmm. I need to live my life, yep. but a range that I would be comfortable in is somewhere between here and there. And be willing to look at packages that aren't just based salary. Companies are trying to get really creative these days on how they can incentivize their employees with stock options, with extra paid time off, which is worth its weight in yep. gold. Yep. Um, and, and so being willing to look at a total package but never taking less than you actually need. Because if you take, less than you need or less than your worth,
2: mm-hmm.
0: from your first day, all you're going to be thinking about is how to get more. Yep. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing to be driven toward the next step, but you do need to come in ready to do the job that you got hired for at a, at a rate and wage that you can be comfortable in for at least like 12 to 18 months.
1: And some of that relates to happiness. You could have the perfect job mm-hmm. if you're making two thirds what you should be making that job. It's not the perfect job. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be happy. Right. Because you're going to be making up for that in other areas, you're going yep. to be cannibalizing time you could give to that job mm-hmm. to do other things, to hustle and make money on the side. Yep. And if, if anything, if nothing else, you're just going to feel undervalued right. in that place and it's going to create distrust between you and your employers, all of which is cancerous. Right. So you're actually being effective and healthy and happy in that job.
0: The other thing I would say is the directness when it comes to asking for the salary in the interview process. If you give them a range and mm-hmm. then they offer you something within that range and then you come back and say, well, actually, I want more now. Yeah, yeah. That can be a real turnoff to employers yep. because you didn't do your homework up front and you set an expectation and they let you come in and meet everybody and maybe everyone fell in love with you and now all of a sudden they thought they could afford you and they can't. And that can be, that can be really detrimental even, and even if they are able to figure out a way to make it work it can really kind of erode from the very start, like the trust between you and the hiring manager, you and the people team, um, if you're not kind of um, elegant throughout the negotiation process with them.
1: All of these things, all of the ways that you present yourself. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, uh, quickly, we don't have a whole bunch more time, but let's talk um, about mistakes people make in the interview.
0: Sure. Um, So one thing, and this is, I think more true in New York than it is anywhere else because people feel like they have an excuse is being on time. Yeah. It's your very first impression. And, you know, in New York, we've got train delays and if you take an Uber, traffic can be crazy. And I know that's true everywhere, but just figure out if you get there an hour and a half early and sit at a coffee shop around the corner, show up to the interview on time yeah. because the people that are interviewing you took time out of their day to meet you. And while you are the talent and you are the thing that they want, They're going to want you a whole lot less if you're not respectful of their time. They probably
1: also got seven interviews that day. And and every minute that you take away from yours and every minute you waste of their time negatively reflects on you and gives you less time to advocate for who you are.
0: Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And then um, showing up to an interview unprepared. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't need to stalk your interviewer. You don't need to know everything about them as a person. But you should know as much as you possibly can about the company. So the way I see it is if the internet has the information for you, you should have it when you walk into the interview. Of course, if you are asking things like, what does this specific role do at this specific company and it doesn't live out there in a job description or there's not a blog about it or you can't find it, then no, you shouldn't be expected to know. But if the information exists in the world, you should walk into the interview knowing mm. it. Yep. Um, because it shows that you are interested and it shows that you want that job and not just a job. Yeah. Um, And I think even backing up a step from the interview, something a lot of people do is they'll apply to 17 jobs at one employer, and that just shows like a lack of decisiveness and a lack of drive and motivation toward the actual goal that you have.
1: And a lack of certainty about your skills and your applicability to a certain job.
0: And a bit of desperation.
1: Yeah. Now, which is different from, uh, I'm very willing to, if I'm interviewing somebody for one job Mm -hmm. and I think... I learn in the interview that they would be better for another.
0: Absolutely. I,
1: as the recruiter, will make that decision. And be very happy to transfer them yeah. to a different path, but you don't get to do that. You need to apply for a job. For what you want. And you need to tell why you're the why you're the best person for the job.
0: Exactly. And like have it down, right? Yeah. Also, like, if you're nervous, say that you're nervous. Yeah. Because at the end of an interview, everybody's nervous. Yes. Yeah. At the end of the interview, the team gets together and they talk about what. What, what their experience was like with yeah. you. And if they're like, they were talking really fast or they uh, were having trouble articulating themselves. If you start the interview by saying, I'm really nervous because I'm just really excited about this opportunity. Yeah. They can at least take that back to the team and say, even if they didn't say it to you, they actually told me that they were feeling really anxious when they got here. And maybe they wouldn't communicate that way in other circumstances if you've got a good hiring team. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is the follow-up. There are all these different rules about, like, do I send a thank you note? Who do I send it to? When do I send basically it? etc.:
1: basically
0: It's totally dating. How soon do I call? It's absolutely dating. Yeah. Like, are they going to choose me at the end of it? We right. went on our first date, and I'd really like a second date. Yeah. Are they going to call me at the end How of it? How soon
1: do I call? How soon do I ask exactly. for another date? Like, who calls first?
0: There are so many yeah. parallels. Yeah. So many. But what I have to say is, if you're going to send a follow-up, send a Mm follow-up. Like it should be personalized. It should draw on the conversation you had with that human. It should be proofread 36 times because it's your, it could be your first written communication with this individual. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've only been emailing with the recruiter and this is your first time to send an email to your hiring manager it should never just go to them without anyone else seeing it. Yeah. You want to strike a balance between casual and formal. There are all these things that you can do right, but if you're not going to do them right and you just send like a thanks for your time and a form letter that you sent to a million other people, in my opinion, that's worse than not sending anything yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Here is
1: here's an important point that I don't think people intuitively get. There are elements of the interviewing and hiring process where the thing that you're doing to get the job is the thing that you would be doing in the job. Sure, If you are applying for an account services role, then talking to people and communicating via email is what you would be doing in the job. If you did that poorly in the application process, it doesn't matter how good your interview goes. Exactly. If you are a designer and this, I can't. If you are a visual designer and your resume looks like shit. Oh. I'm not even asking you for an interview. Yeah. Or
0: if it's not in a format that can be easily opened on any device. Right. And, and that's kind of across the board. But if you're a person who's like making things that people need to open and read for yes. a living and you and didn't think. you can't think. open your resume. <laughs> yeah. No, just put yeah. some time
1: into thinking, what are the qualities that are resp- that are required to do the job? Yeah. And how do I reflect those qualities well in my application and interviewing Absolutely. process so that I demonstrate? Yep. It's about more than the conversation. It's mm-hmm. about the whole package. Yeah. And if you are representing me as an organization, mm-hmm. and you represent yourself poorly mm-hmm. in the interview, there's no way I'm going to hire you to represent exactly. me as, as for the organization.
0: We talk regularly about that. You know, when we're filling roles like an accountant, mm-hmm. and they're having trouble with communication, we'll, as the recruiting team, it's our responsibility to bring up like they might not have been great at that, but they actually don't need to be yeah, great at that to job. do the job. Right. But to your point, if someone comes in and they're going to be external facing in any way, or they're going to be managing people, yep. and they were terrible at communication or short in communication or, or Rude
1: to the receptionist yeah. when they come in the door.
0: Exactly. Yeah, no. Yeah, then you're not going to move forward. But it's always about putting in context yep. the person that comes in for how they perform with the job that they're going to do.
1: And again, if you're interviewing somebody and they're not judging you by these things, if you're an accountant and they're and they're criticizing your people skills, yeah. then fine. You probably don't want to be there anyway. But chances are a good company is going to judge you. And it's, it's beyond the interview. Mm-hmm. It's beyond the application. Mm-hmm. It's beyond any one thing. It's the entire way. That you present the package of yourself represents how you're going to present the package of the company I that you work for. Completely
0: agree. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What are uh, the biggest sort of individual? I mean, this can be like horror stories or just uh, general mm-hmm. tenets across the interviewing process. Biggest dumbest mistakes that you've seen, that you've seen people. I make? mean,
0: the cover letter with the wrong company. Bad. All the time. I mean, I cannot tell you how often it happens <laughs> uh, where someone's like, you know, r- reaching out to a Paperless Post and saying, I really welcome the opportunity to work at Eventbrite. You're like, okay, you're out of here, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> any sort of misspelling on your resume or on your cover letter, again, like, how did this not go through a million sets of eyes? Misspellings
1: ice? are unforgivable at this point, given that you're all using Word I know. and Word literally underlines every word. Given that's the tools, for you.
0: it's just it is un, it's unacceptable. Yep. Um, you and know, it's not
1: about your knowledge; it's about your use of the tools. You don't have to be a perfect speller. Use the tool.
0: And the tool is there. All the tools are there to yep. help you. And if they're not, again, like the internet is there to help you ask for advice. There are a bunch of tools on LinkedIn where you can put your resume out there and ask for advice from experts. Um, and they, people like me are signed up to give you feedback on, on how it looks. So just taking advantage of those things, that's a big thing. Um, sending thank you notes with the wrong names on them yeah. so or with the name spelled incorrectly. Yep. Um, that type of thing can be really bad. It's all attention
1: to detail. Yes. Yep.
0: And then kind of striking the right balance of follow-up after you've done the interview, I think, is something that people get wrong a lot of the time. You do want to follow up with the with the recruiting team or the talent acquisition team and ask for next steps have them set a realistic expectation for you. If they tell you we're going to call you on Monday and they don't call you by Monday at 6 p.m., call them on Tuesday morning. Do not call them on Sunday, right? So it's just like making sure that along the way you're asking for what the process is going to be like and you're holding the team on the other end accountable to keep to that process without like stalking them.
1: (laughs) Which relates to one other other thing uh, that I find myself telling people a lot is it is dating, you are evaluating them just as much as they are evaluating you. Yes. So if in their interview process you're getting bad vibes, mm-hmm. they're being dishonest with yep. you, they're a doping you, mm-hmm. they're extending the deadlines more than is reasonable given that things change. Yeah. Make a decision. Like say, this isn't this obviously yep. is not a place that I want to work. You know, use your agency in the process. You are evaluating them. Pay attention to the signals that they are giving Mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. And if it's a disorganized, disrespectful organization, Mm -hmm. tell them you're not interested. You have the ability to do that. And I don't think that people, I think this is different from sort of potentially millennials and Gen Y, but a lot of people, I don't think, they think that they have to come in from a a place of desperation and that they have to take being treated poorly as part of the process of getting a job.
0: No, I mean, I will tell you that At the time that I took the job at Paperless Post, I had three competing offers for bigger titles. Like I I had a C when I came in, and I was keeping a C. And my title's very ambiguous at at, uh, Paperless Post, but it's not a C title. And that was something that was important to me that they weren't willing to bend on because of their internal structure. And so that was kind of a bummer for me. Um, And there were were some other things about it that were not... the job wasn't as big because it wasn't over operations and I had been over operations for a couple of years. But at the end of the day, the process and the people that I met, I mean, this executive team that I've joined are some of the most talented, diverse human beings I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Mm. And I knew going in, I'm going to learn something from every single one of them. And knowing that I was going to be ahead of the people team and I was they were they were able to usher me through this entire interview process without having a me there. Mm-hmm. I was like this is this is going Might to be a dream be when easier, I get there. Yes. So I I turned down bigger offers and bigger titles to take this job because I knew that the company cared about that and since I've been there it's been something that we're super focused on is making sure that the candidate experience is as good as it can be, mm-hmm. because for everyone you don't hire, for everyone that doesn't even get the interview, if they had a terrible experience with you, they're going to go out there and tell mm-hmm. that to the world. If they had a good experience, even though they didn't get yep. the offer, they will probably also still go out there and tell the world, and other people will want to come and work for you because of that. And if
1: you don't get that dream candidate this time, you'll get them the next time around because you left a good taste in exactly. their mouth. Exactly, which is true both ways. All right, so that relates to final question. You're hearing some noise in the background. These guys are getting ready to yes. open their doors, and so we should probably wrap up soon. This show is primarily... We say it's how you find meaningful work, how you find meaning in the work that we Mm -hmm. do. Meaning can be a lot of things. It can be social change in the world, but it can also be personal satisfaction and Mm -hmm. the joy uh, that you find... We all have to do a job. Yep. Uh, Chances are if you don't have to do a job and you're independently wealthy, you're not listening to this podcast. It's (laughs) so fine. But most of us have to do a job. Um, How do you think through this process and what advice would you give to people about their orientation to work and their own happiness. And I know that's a big question, but what thoughts do you have about how people can transfer themselves perhaps from a frame of mind that says, mm-hmm. I just gotta do this meaningless job to how do we find happiness throughout our career? How do we build toward happiness mm-hmm. when we think about future jobs that we want? And mm-hmm. how do we think about meaning in that way? What advice would you give to people for for that whole picture of satisfaction and meaning?
0: Sure. I mean. So a lot of it has to do with like, we're not all lucky enough to be to go on this quest mm-hmm. of doing exactly what we want to do. And yep. quite frankly, most of us don't know exactly what right. we want to do. So I would say when you're kind of searching for the thing that you want to do, you also have to be searching for the type of person you want to surround yourself with. Because at the end of the day, you are spending a minimum of 40 hours a week with these humans that you're surrounding yourself with. And even if you are doing some meaningless job, if you're doing it around people, that are kind, that are caring, that are motivated, that are driven, that care about you. It kind of doesn't matter what you're doing. If you are one of those people that's in a very fortunate position that you get to actually do the thing that you love and you know what you love, and you're surrounded by people that are not doing what they love and that don't feel invested in the company and don't feel like they're treated well by the company, you're still not going to be happy. So, like, do your homework and do your research on the companies that you decide to go and work for, even when you know you're not doing this thing that's going to give you like this internal fulfillment. Because at the end of the day, you can go and find that fulfillment outside of work.
2: Mm -hmm. You can
0: invest your, if you're not doing something that you absolutely love, you can go and invest in your hobbies. You can go and spend that time outside of work. But the point is, is that you're working somewhere where you at the very least believe in the mission and vision, but more than anything, you believe in the people that are working there with you because they are going to make the difference at the end of the day. So did I wake up ever and say, I want to be an HR person? No, I still haven't to this day, but at every job I've taken, I've done my best to get a feel for the people during the interview process. And when I When and if I've realized that the people are not going to align to like what brings me happiness, I move on. And so that's the other thing is having the confidence once you realize something is off to still give 60 to 75 percent of yourself at work, but spend the rest of your time and energy trying to figure out what's next for yourself instead of falling into a place of complacency because it can be detrimental to your mental health. Mm -hmm. um, it can, it can really, really wear on you. I mean, as we talked about, you had, you had a very miserable two years yourself. And so it's kind of take the initiative to say, to recognize when you're not happy and to move on instead of staying in something that's toxic for you because it's toxic for the employer as well.
1: And a lot of those companies, um, are doing that on purpose. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of organizations, yep. unfortunately, maybe people need to hear this, create a sense of powerlessness among their employees. The, the discussion will be, well, yeah, it's, maybe it's bad here, but my God, the labor market, you don't want to get involved in, in that at all. Don't listen to that. Yeah, There is always something better no. out there for you. And the idea of, you know, one of the things I had written down here was the concept of loyalty. Mm-hmm. Organizations will very often build up this, well, you should be loyal to your employer. But if the employer is not loyal to you, and many of them, there mm-hmm. are good places out there, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about the ones that are not. Yeah. Would, would your employer show the same loyalty to you when yeah. the chips are down? Are they going to cut half the workforce?
0: And if they do, how are they going to treat you on your way out? Yep. Right. So that's the thing. There are business realities that sometimes employers sure, have sure. to make the cuts. But there are two paths they can go down on your way out. And they can go down the path of making sure you feel respected and taken care of. And they can go down the path of you're a cog in a machine. And I'm sorry, this is business, but you got to go. Yeah. And you can. Th- there is enough out there that you can read these days about these companies to just do your homework and see what the perception is. Because nine times out of ten, it's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, obviously, know when to sift through the bullshit. Like on Glassdoor, for instance. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a platform for disgruntled employees. Right. Go to multiple sources, do your digging, figure out what you can, look at different profiles of this of these companies and really see how they're gonna treat you because at the end of the day I, I fully believe that it's it's less about what you're doing and more about who you're surrounded with. I believe that in life in general. Yeah, yeah. But certainly having gone down this path and acted as more of a career counselor for the for the majority of the last decade, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that that's what I hear over and over again. is like, the work's actually really interesting, but I can't get along with my manager. Or the work's really interesting, but I don't feel like the company is giving anything back to me. Yep. Um, and, and I think that's kind of what makes or breaks it for a lot of people. And the willingness to move on when it's just not a fit.
1: Yeah. yeah. Know that. Make the decision.
0: Yes. Be Start loyal looking. to yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's not disloyal to be in a job and looking out there. This yeah. is this this is maybe the one area that it's not like dating. Mm-hmm. Uh, or depending on how you... <laughs> it's like you, an uh, open relationship. You, yeah, it is. It is an open <laughs> relationship. Is that just because you're happy somewhere doesn't mean that you might not be happier elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you can't listen to opportunities. And sometimes, and I know this has been mm-hmm. the case for you, um, sometimes hearing the opportunity and going through the hiring cycle at another place reminds you how, how comfortable you actually yeah. are in the place you are. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. You're not being disloyal by taking an offer or looking mm-hmm. you know, uh, at what's available out there. Sometimes it can have the inverse effect of actually telling you that you're in the right place mm-hmm. and making you happier where you are, just mm-hmm. so long as you're not using that as an excuse to not get out there and, and look totally. for the best thing you can find.
0: Totally. And I, I have two thoughts on that. One is that you should always be expanding your network. So even if you take the interview knowing you would never take the job, you could meet someone that's going to change the course of your life. So take the interview. But on the other side of that, be willing to talk to your current manager and boss about the fact that you're having these conversations. Because it's going to do two things. It's going to show them how much the market wants you and that they could lose you, right? Mm Um and you again you want to make yourself indispensable to them. And then but you're also- not having
1: that conversation when you've already accepted exactly. an offer and now they can't counter. Exactly. Yeah. And
0: once you're miserable, right? right? So yep. just keep the open line of all of these people want transparency from their employers. Yeah. What I ask of the employees is be transparent with us. Totally. When something's not working, tell us and we'll do everything we can. And if both parties are like, you know what, we just can't make this work, then if you're honest about it and you've been working through it the whole time, just like in a relationship, mm-hmm. it can be a lot less jarring when it doesn't work out or when they decide to move on from you or for them when you decide to move on.
1: Yep. Yeah. Such good stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carrie. You're
0: welcome. This has
1: been wonderful and let me say it has been a privilege to be somehow involved <laughs> in your circuitous <laughs> career path and I you am. You have been uh, more
0: than involved. You actually were you were there at the time that the path changed for me and I've always appreciated that. Well, it's
1: been fun to see where it went since then <laughs> and I'm I'm proud of what you have accomplished and I thank love you. your input has been wonderful. It was exactly why I wanted to talk to you so. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much.
2: Yeah.
1: This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Queen City Radio, located at 222 West 12th Street, just down the street from the historic Music Hall and the lovely Washington Park in Over the Rhine, Cincinnati. Queen City Radio is an eclectic bar and beer garden in a former service station. It's a really cool space, whether you're inside, out on the spacious patio, or even tucked into the cozy Airstream trailer that sits on their lot. Thanks to Laura and the Queen City Radio crew for letting us in before the doors open. You can find links to Queen City Radio's website and social media pages, as well as photos of our time there on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. Thanks again so much to my guest, Carrie Farler, for sharing her experience, her journey, and her perspective. I find these discussions so helpful in thinking about career development. And I also find that most people really only think about this when they're in the thick of it, rather than creating that perspective, even when things don't require crisis management. Carrie mentioned the article she published on LinkedIn. It's called Get a Job, and you can find it as well as Carrie's LinkedIn profile and links to Paperless Post's website and social media profiles on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, strategies you employ for managing your career growth, applying for jobs, interviewing, and generally pursuing the work you find meaningful. If you have thoughts, please share them with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, or you can use the contact form on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. We always love to hear from you. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by the wonderful Justin Golden. Our logos are by Scott Ryan Design. Video work by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. Check out the photos of this episode by the amazing Kyle Wolf, and you can find links to her work on our website as well. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, listen and download every episode of The Distiller at thedistillerpodcast.com, where you'll also find links, photos of the guests, and a map of all of our show locations. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. Follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us make more of these episodes and support the work, just click the Become a Patron button on our website for more information on how you can do so. And finally, please take a second to rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. We definitely appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson. Thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.